At the time of this recording, Jennifer Kessie has been missing for nearly 15 years. Her 39th birthday was May 24th. There's no telling what Jennifer would have accomplished all these years in between. She might have had children of her own and a house, perhaps risen high up in a company or created her own business. Maybe she'd have traveled the country as she had dreamt. Anything was possible for Jen. But these milestones were stolen along with Jennifer, never to be realized. While the Orlando Police Department insists Jen's case is still active, multiple sources claim that very little, if anything, has been investigated in the last seven years. With no answers about their daughter's whereabouts, the Kessie family decided to do something that I've never seen done before in the case of a missing person. They sued the Orlando Police Department for all the records on Jennifer's case so they could become the lead detectives in their own daughter's disappearance. Why did you sue the Orlando Police Department and why did you want all of Jen's records? We were step in step with them the whole way. We felt we were a true team right up to when we sued them. But in, I guess, year 10, nothing was happening. We were going in every single damn direction, nothing's happening. So we asked them, let us read the records. Let us come in. They're like, what are you, crazy? Get out of here. We're like, okay, let a PI of ours come in, read only, eyes only. We're not giving that, this, this would set precedent. We're not letting anyone in. It's an open and active case, and no one gets that. And they still insisted that it was open and active. The Cassie's legal battle might never have come to be if not for the tenacity of a man named Paul Sisko. Hi, Paul. Hey. hey. Christina Corbin. Oh, Hi. Christina, nice, nice to meet you. Paul, yes. good to see you. Hi, Doreen Tanner. Hey, Doreen. Nice to meet you. Are you a friend? Yeah, I did meet Brian. Okay. Go way back. Yeah, yeah. We know each other. Sitting in his law office in downtown Tampa, Paul tells me how it all started. I can tell you this. I'm constantly interested by this case. You know, this is one of those ones where you, to the point where my wife says you need to quit thinking about that case. And that happens every once in a while, but that also is what makes us good. So when and how did you get involved in the Jennifer Kessie case? It was over a very good Mexican meal, actually. A friend of mine who was a longtime investigator, he introduced me to a gentleman by the name of Michael Toretta. My friend who was retiring was retired IRS CID, so the criminal side of the IRS, a Fed. Michael was a former DEA officer right. in New York and down here also. Two very different sort of federal agencies. But Michael came highly recommended to me, and I liked Michael immediately. And Michael told me about this case and the family. And I had one thing about Florida that's weird is Orlando and Tampa are very insular and separated from each other. So I had kind of heard of this case because Jennifer went to a Tampa high school, went to Gaither High School in North Tampa. I see. But I don't think a lot of the folks in Tampa knew the case right away. So I was reminded by Michael all these years later now, this was about 2018, early 2018, that the family was interested in doing what they could do to see if they could obtain the police file whether it be a homicide file, it certainly was a missing persons file. And it was voluminous from what we understood. 
we ended up suing the city of Orlando and the police chief to get this file. And the essence of the litigation, which is kind of unique in Florida, is if you can demonstrate that a case is not active, you can sue to get that file. It's the burden of the plaintiff to show that it's not active anymore. It doesn't happen very often. It's a pretty rare situation. What led the Cassies to want to sue? I got to tell you, the parents and the brother Logan are a force of nature. And I think that they believe that the primary way they're going to find out what happened and ultimately potentially perhaps prosecute someone if foul play is involved, which it appears to have been, is to keep it in the news. And so it's a compelling story in and of itself. And the Kessies, I think, got to the point where even though they were being told the case was still being worked on, they were not seeing that it was still being worked on. And very early on in those 14 years, the family had far greater knowledge of the facts and the moving pieces in this case than they believed law enforcement had. And they said, look, and it was never a malicious type thing. It was always a, we have to find out what happened to our sister and daughter. And they wanted the files. And they sought legal advice on how best to get them. And so it was just the next piece to keep the case moving. What were your first impressions of this case when you read all of the facts? (sighs) That when the facts initially hit, the family immediately knew it was a real urgency and a tragedy and when you saw it on paper and you watched how the media reacted to it there was not that urgency in those first 48 hours that were commensurate with what the Kessies were feeling you know their instincts were right once they found that car you know 48 hours after the disappearance that really put a catalyst into the case from law enforcement standpoint also And that's, you know, in my experience, that's where the devil in the details is. Paul's legal credentials are impressive. He's a former state prosecutor turned private defense lawyer, handling mostly white-collar criminal defense involving health care. So the Jennifer Kessy case was a challenge, even for someone as skilled as Paul. Suing for records is such a specialized area of law, Paul enlisted the help of lawyer Michael Kest, based on his experience handling other public records cases. I think it was 2018, Paul Sisko, who's the other attorney, contacted me. I had had some other public records case that were mm-hmm. not high profile, national, but high profile for Orlando area. And, you know, he had known I'd done that before. And so he said, hey, you know, is this something you'd be interested in doing? We're trying to get the records here. And, you know, it's a very niche area of the law. Not a lot of people do it. And so he said that and I said, sure, you know, I'd be happy to help out with this. It was an interesting case because Unlike other ones, it wasn't like they were saying, no, we don't have the records. It wasn't saying we're not going to produce them. It was more, we've got an exemption here. It's a blanket exemption that basically lasts forever. And that didn't seem right. And it certainly didn't seem right when I looked at the statute and said, no, that's not quite what the statute says. There is an exemption in Florida law that says public records are not available if there is an active, ongoing investigation. Criminal investigative information can be withheld as long as an investigation is considered active. But how long is too long? Pure speculation. I mean, I was a prosecutor, but I was not a police officer. My assumption is if they give the records, then they're setting a precedent they don't want to set. And so they're saying, listen, we're just going to make a blanket statement and say no records. And 
that way we don't have to get into this gray area of has it been too long, is it time to give the records, and it's much easier to have a bright line than it is to have that gray area. But the truth is the law requires that. If it is not an active investigation, the law is very clear. They cannot withhold the records. And the reason for that is pretty clear as well. If it's not active, if your leads are cold, then why are you holding on to them? Why are you not giving someone else a chance? Why are you not getting those records out? It makes sense at the beginning of an investigation. If you get some leads, you don't necessarily want everyone mm-hmm. in the public yeah. to know. We'll be back after this short break. New from the Fox News Podcast Network, a look back at the 2000 election. I will work for you every day and I will never let you down. Fox News presents Election Rewind 2000. Give me the opportunity to lead this nation and I will lead. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. Hey folks, it's your man Keyshawn Johnson here to talk about Angie. Formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. For the Cassies, who sued in December 2018, 13 years was long enough. It was an uphill legal battle that took more than a year and more than $18,000 of the Kessies' money. In the end, they won. Shannon Butler broke the story this morning. Jennifer Kessie's parents have won a years-long fight to get access to their daughter's police case file. Shannon Butler, whom you met earlier in this podcast, is still on the case, but now a reporter with WFTV. This settlement just signed will have Orlando police turning over all of their files and walking away from the mystery. It will take months, maybe even years, to figure out what happened. But they know they may never know. But for now, they have hope that the right clue is hidden in those files somewhere. We're fighting for our daughter, Jennifer, and we'll do anything. When you have walked through the missteps, mistakes, lies, the next logical thing to do is say, I think we can do it better. I don't think they're doing anything right now other than lip service. It's a good thing we went after those files because we found out that they weren't doing anything. The Kessies start receiving files from the Orlando Police Department, but the pages are heavily redacted. At what point did you start getting these files from PD? 
in March of 2019, we reached a settlement agreement with them where the Kessie family paid the costs of the production and the time taken essentially for two full-time employees at the city to go through the entire file, make the legal redactions, and produce it to us. And when you say legal redactions, what are we talking about? Under Florida law, they are prohibited by law. In fact, it's a felony to turn over certain information to us. They can't just say, hey guys, there's 18 bankers boxes, have at them, go make copies. They have to be reviewed page by page and produced to us. And as part of the agreement, they had to certify that they were devoting two full-time employees to that. And they began providing us, for lack of a better word, in the civil world we'd say productions, but tranches of documents started coming to us digitally at that point. You know, we, we might get three or 4,000 documents at a time, so as those were coming in every two weeks, we also have to go through the process of reviewing those and so on. And we thought initially, and in fact it appears to a large extent, there were some over-redactions. Drew did not hold back about his frustration. And it turns out that in the end, OPD agrees through a contract. They're going to give it to us unredacted. Great. They give us the first set, which probably was about 50,000 pages, maybe 40,000 pages. And they're like three quarters of the way redacted. So we're like, don't take us as fools. I'm telling you, don't mess with us. You know, so we're back in court and they said, okay, okay. We actually started doing the work before you paid us your $18,000 to get the digital. And that's what we sent you. So now we have to go back through what we already did and unredact things, but still redact out what we need to, which is social security numbers, NCIC information, and I think it's telephone numbers, something like that. It's a year and three months now that we're still fighting on redacted pages. Then I guess about four months ago, out of nowhere, on some other media had approached the chief and said, you know, have you given everything to the Kessies? And he said, yeah, I, I believe we have. And he called that media person and me the next day and said, hey, you know, I went back and checked and there was a whole bunch of leads we didn't give you. Great. So you don't even know what you have. Everything is just incredibly like fighting us tooth and nail for us not to have the information that they agreed to give us. So no, we still don't have certification, which is what they have to do. They have to certify that they gave us all the files and they can't do that yet. I asked Orlando police chief, Orlando Rolan, about Jennifer's records. He became chief one year before the Kessies filed their lawsuit. The police records that the Kessie family sought legal action to obtain are all the records in their possession now? Most, most of the records. There are certain records that could not be released, but most of the records have been released to them. Why were there some records that couldn't be released? The attorneys who were responsible for vetting the request and after consulting with the lead investigator, there were certain information of investigative value that they had to keep and maintain. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. Teresa will be able to specify why that is. Chief Rolan referred us to Kern investigator Teresa Sprague for answers to a number of questions we directed at him. We reached out for an interview with Sprague multiple times, and we were denied our request by OPD Media Relations. The Kessies now have 95% of the records. That's more than 16,000 pages 
and over 60 hours of visual tapes. The files raised serious concerns for the Cassies and their legal team. Long way of saying there are things in that file that bother me. What the documents reveal is what I thought they would reveal, which is, you know, over time, police agencies change dramatically. Leadership changes dramatically. Particularly people at the top of the detective, you know, hierarchy in this. So generally, you want to put your homicide or your, you know, your foul play involving missing persons right at the top of that. They work their way through property and all that and they get there. Those people change over 14 years dramatically. And so oftentimes what happens is you don't have an owner of that file per se. You know, you don't have the person who's invested the way Drew Kessie is every night or Joyce Kessie waiting for their daughter, you know to come home. And so it's not their fault, you know, it gets passed on to a, a new person who comes into that office and people retire, people move on, and the historical link to that case sometimes disappears. It's sad. It's been eye-opening, but it's been eye-opening in the worst possible way. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the stuff that's frustrating is you finally get the records and unfortunately it confirms your worst fears. That there's just, I mean, there's some stuff in there. There's, yeah. there's ways to go, but it is not nearly what they were hoping for. Perhaps one of the most frustrating details was this. A seven-year gap of nothing in the files, according to the Kessies. Is it true that no police work has been done on this case in the last seven years? Well, it's difficult to answer that question because there has been some statements made by the police department that not everything was written down and that there were other things done. I mean, if nothing else, if that investigator is no longer in the case, someone else has to come through. So mm -hmm. either nothing's been done or there's no paper trail and it's impossible for anyone to take over the case and everything is just in the person's head. That doesn't make any sense. But yeah, there hasn't been a whole lot done. It doesn't mean they haven't followed up on any leads or anything, mm -hmm. but it's difficult looking at the records that have been produced to figure out what exactly has been done, mm -hmm. which goes to our very point of why it was not an active investigation. Despite their frustration with the police, the Cassies and their legal team say the files are rich in information on possible suspects and persons of interest. Do you feel that the person or persons involved might very well be named in these records? Yes. Paul elaborates a little more. I mean, candidly, some of it very helpful and easy to understand, some of it of no organizational value at all or help, a great deal of redundancy, and frankly, a lot of what appeared to be reinventing the wheel from year to year as new investigators would come on it and so on. However, since we've gotten the file, Michael Toretta, who is the investigator who has been working on the case, has developed some good leads and really one of the best catalysts to lighting a fire under the case again was unexpected for me, which was once the case was back in the local newspapers or at least local media again in the Tampa and Orlando areas, witnesses started coming forward. And, you know, there's a percentage of leads that's valuable. You know, it's usually about 95% is not of any genuine value, but there's nuggets in that 5% that you have to run down. And while I've been trying to focus on the legal aspect 
of the case, the investigative unit does sort of keep me apprised and certainly keeps the Kessie family apprised of what's going on. And they're, they are running down some valuable leads. And the case continues to be very active despite its old age. I have reason to believe that many of these are genuine leads. Some of them, frankly, happen from you know, shaking the bushes a little bit and just sort of potentially disturbing witnesses that might not have been disturbed in over a decade and uh, reminding them of the importance this case has, especially for the Kessie family. And so people have recollections of events that may not have been accurately recorded. For instance, I know that Mr. Toretta had spoken to a series of people that were living in the apartment complex or the condominium complex at or near the time of the disappearance, several of which were reporting uh, regular sort of verbal abuse from some of the workers from the actual facility. People that were, as we understand it, were given permission to live on the premises during the construction and the add-ons, renovations that were taking place there. I know that the investigator has spoken to several of them. They've given us some, if not outright suspects, good people of interest to speak to. And we've located many of those people and are currently following up on those interviews. I know it's speculative, but based on everything that you know and all of the files that you've reviewed, do you believe that one or more persons in those records knows what happened to Jennifer? I do believe that. I believe that it would have taken more than one person to have created sort of the dearth or the lack of evidence that exists right now and that the lack of, you know, what appear to be strong leads in the formative days of the investigation, you know, from 06 to 08. I believe that and have, you know, since my involvement in this, that the culpable parties are most likely, and the evidence would suggest, are people that were working at the facility at Mosaic in January of 2006. In our next episode of House of Broken Dreams, you'll meet a woman who says she was harassed by a sexual predator while living at Mosaic. When I opened the door thinking a pest or a even maybe a deer or something was on there. <laughs> a raccoon is really what I expected to see. In the corner of my patio to the left, maybe six feet from me, is a man. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.